Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with poet and author Sean Hughes, whose book Pearl is longlisted for this year's Man Booker Prize. Pearl is a stunning novel, originally published in the United Kingdom by the Indigo Press and just republished in Australia by University of Queensland Press, Australian Small Publisher of the Year for three years running. Pearl is a ghost story, a folk story, a story of loss and familial haunting. Hughes's narrator, Marianne, is eight years old when her mother goes missing. Left behind with her baby brother and grieving father in a ramshackle house on the edge of a small village, she clings to the fragmented memories of her mother's love and the songs and stories of her childhood. Discovering a medieval poem called Pearl and trusting in its promise of consolation, Marianne sets out to make a visual illustration of it, a task that she returns to over and over, but somehow never manages to complete. I began our conversation by asking Hughes about Cheshire, where Pearl is set and where Hughes lives. It's very hard to talk about a place where you belong and where you grew up, because obviously, to me, this is just normal whatever is here is normal and I suppose it was only when I moved away as an adult that I realized that's really quite an extraordinary thing to grow up in a small community where your grandparents are buried and where there's a sense of continuity and particularly of lots of stories attached to everything so where I live in this corner of South Cheshire it's a very rural community Um, the village I grew up in Tilston which is in the book has about 500, 600 people. There are lots of dairy farms and sheep farms. The landscape is very unspectacular. It is quite boggy and flat. There are lots of very old, beautiful hedgerows, but it's not one of those places that you travel to and go, oh, wow, the landscape, you know? It's really just full of flat paths and boggy fields and meandering rivers and stuff like that. That's the area that I grew up in. When I moved away, I realised that it was an extraordinary thing to live somewhere where everywhere you go has a story attached to it. Even the fields have names. Everything is attached to some other thing. Just even walking around it is like walking in and out of stories all the time. Yes, and you can feel that in this novel. Time and stories are enveloping and ever-present. Is it a stretch to suppose, in turn, that these stories and the people of this book have been around you for a long time? The story has sort of been with me all my life. I've been trying to find a way to write it. And it grew out of a bike ride that I used to do as a teenager. It was the ride from my house to my boyfriend's house. And obviously, growing up in the country, there's no public transport. So everywhere you go, you go on your bike. This particular bike ride went past some very beautiful old buildings that were more or less falling down. And one in particular, I really liked the look of. I've never been inside it. I've never even been on the lane. But then I started inventing characters to put into that building. And I invented this whole family of characters there. And I wrote about them for years, but I didn't have a plot to impose on them. I sort of knew their history and where they came from, how they came to be there, and invented all these different things. And in fact, there were lots more characters than there are now. Every time I've rewritten the book, I've taken a few more out. I think I went a bit carried away at first. I had loads and loads of them. Anyway, then in my 20s, a very good friend of mine, who was a writer in a group I was in of writers, 
he took his own life by drowning in a river. So I got all these favourite characters who had sort of been with me like as little playthings in my head, if you like, all this time. I was very attached to them all. And I wrote all their names on a piece of paper and I closed my eyes and stuck a pen on the page. And whoever's name it stuck on, I would make them do the same thing. I would make them go into the river just because I wanted something that would express how random it felt, how unlikely, how if that one person could choose that, then it felt in my mind anybody could. It just seemed so improbable a thing. So it landed on the name of the mother. And I thought that's an impossible story to write. I can't write that story. It's too horrible. Couldn't imagine why that character that I'd invented, why she would ever find herself in such a moment of despair. It, it seemed so impossible. So I set out trying to write it, trying to work out why she might do it. But I also really missed her because she was sort of my favourite invention. It's a bit of a strange process to write a book yourself trying to work out why rather than starting from a motive and the character being built on the motive. It sort of was the other way around for me that I had the character and then I wrote it to try and find out why she might feel like that. And then as I grew older and I became a mother myself, and I had the experience of postpartum psychosis and depression. And I sort of began to get more insights to how fragile somebody's state might be when they had a very young baby. And so this sort of fed into the story. So when I say it's taken me all my life, I guess I haven't been writing it all my life. <laughs> the characters are there from very early on. The plot has grown with me. And um, when I moved back to the village permanently, obviously I kept coming back to it as a visitor because my mum was there. But then when my mum became very ill, I moved back to the village to look after her until she died. And my sister did as well. So we all found ourselves back in the village as adults. And then after my mother had died, I think that was the final element of the story, if you like. That was... There'd been all these different layers going into it over years. And then the final thing that made it possible for me to create the book was actually losing my mother. Because then I was living in her landscape, in the place where she'd been very happy, where she felt she belonged and where she was buried. And so it was living back there as an adult that sort of finally gave me the last clue, if you like that meant I was able to write the book finally. That's a really beautiful sentiment. And given this change allowed you to, in a sense, unlock something within the text, I'd be curious to know how the book has changed over time. Marianne herself acknowledges that her story, this story, is one that has evolved over time via lost pages, lost floppy disks, lost drives. Is that the case with your own writing? I did one version of it which took place entirely over 24 hours and during that 24 hours there was like the key reveal that is now in the centre of the book. So I tried to do it all sort of as a time scribble from 24 hours that it would sort of go backwards and forwards but my agent hated that one. <laughs> he said that one was terrible. And the first one that I completed had got some extra characters in it. In particular, there was an older sister who I always thought was 
closer to me. Then in later drafts, I removed that sister. That meant as that sister had been the one that held lots of secrets and was really important for the plot, I got sort of halfway through the book without her and I felt that it was a lot sharper with just one daughter because all of the experiences happened to one person instead of them being sort of shared out between people of different ages in the family. It all happened to one person and that made that much stronger character. So I was pleased with that. I got to the middle of the book and I (laughs) realised... I'd taken like a key beam out of my plot structure. (laughs) That took quite a lot of fixing. Yeah, of course. The story is really tightly woven, like Marianne's own artwork. So in fact, if you take any of the pins out, then the whole thing falls to pieces. Then you sort of have to go back to the construction, if you like. It was quite complicated to plot. I wanted there to be things in it that popped up everywhere. Like, for instance, mint. I have mint, like, right at the beginning when they're dressing the graves for the village grave dressing festival, that there's mint and there's lavender that they put in with the rushes to decorate the graves. Somebody said to me, oh, this is basically a ghost story. Um, I don't really... I don't really see it as as a ghost story uh, as such, but I have used certain things like the smell of mint for instance or the way that mint grows to try and represent some kind of spiritual presence as it's grief itself but the idea of the way that mint grows that it spreads everywhere under the ground and it pops up in places you never know when it's going to pop up but when it does and you tread on it you immediately notice that such a strong smell is released I was trying to use that as a way to talk about the way that the feelings go underground and spread everywhere. And you never know where in your home landscape you're going to tread on something that sparks a memory that's going to conjure a person. I know what you mean. I think you capture that in quite an astonishing way in this book. The everything of things, scents and sounds and images that Marianne relates to people, memories, and I think most importantly, feelings is very powerful and profound. It um it evokes quite strongly that attachment between the human, the natural, and the spiritual worlds that is present in the medieval poem of the same name, Pearl, that you've somewhat adapted for this novel of your own. Could you tell us a little bit about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and of Pearl? So Pearl and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight were written at the same time as Chaucer, but they were written in the dialect that was spoken in the area where I grew up in Cheshire, which at the time there was a court. The king had a court in London, but he also had a court in Chester, which was really important. It was like a major import-export centre for the economy. So there was this court in Cheshire. There was one surviving copy of this manuscript that contains four poems, and the one that's best known is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And then there's Pearl, and there's two others called Patience and Purity. Um, But Sir Gawain is the one that's really well known. It's been like made in lots of children's books and films. There's quite a recent film adaptation, actually. There's quite a lot of them. And um, when I realised that they came from where I came from, I sort of felt that they belonged to me in some way. And I really loved the writing of them. Like a lot of people who study the poem, Pearl, I am a massive fan of it. I think it is probably the most complex and deceptively simple, beautiful piece of poetry written in English. It just happens to have been written in a dialect of English that nobody speaks anymore. So it's quite hard to read. You have to read the translations. But luckily, there are lots and lots of really good ones. 
in the story of Pearl, there's a father who's the narrator. He goes to a grave, but he describes it as a garden. And the word he uses for a garden sounds to the modern ear like a herb garden, but it just means a garden. And there's beautiful flowers and beautiful scents coming from this grave mound. And he lies on it and their their scents are sort of released around him. He says he's lost his pearl in this garden, that it's trundled under the ground. And you sort of understand by this that it's his child that he's lost and it's her grave and she's the pearl that's trundled underground. And pearl would have been like quite a common name at the time, it was really popular to name girls Pearl or Marjorie or Margaret. So that's where I got the mother's name from for the book, that she's the pearl. He falls asleep on the grave and he has a dream vision, which is accompanied by sounds, so beautiful songs. There's a silence on the grave and he hears the most beautiful songs. And he's taken in this dream world through like an enchanted forest. And he sees his daughter in heaven on the other side of the river. And she's become like a young woman. So he says, how come you're this queen in heaven dressed in these glorious clothes all, you know, decorated with pearls? And and when you were only, you weren't even two years old when you died. And she basically lectures him from the other side of the stream and says, you've you got it all wrong, Daddy. You know, And the child's voice is really well done in that it's a bit like a sermon, but it's also a bit like a young child telling their parent that they're silly and that they, you know, don't they understand basic things. She says, oh, you have to accept God's will and um, you can't follow me. But he doesn't want to wake up. He doesn't want to go back to his life without her. So he tries to cross the river. He throws himself into the water, which, of course, he's not allowed to do because it's not his choice whether he lives or dies. So when he does this, he wakes up and he's back in the graveyard. And that's the entire story. The way it's it's made, each little section is like a perfect little poem in itself. There's a little section of five stanzas each time. Everything is counted in it. So it's like a necklace or a rosary of beads that and there's a link word at the end of every one which links to the next one. So it's like a little clip. So it's really, really beautifully made and highly elaborate. So that's why I've got songs going through because of the songs he hears when he goes to the grave. In the silence, he hears these most beautiful songs. And that's why there's little bits at the start of the chapters as well, because I'm trying to link to the way the poem is made and has like a little link word each time. So I'm trying to make the songs like the link bit. It does link. It carries through. And those songs take on an increasingly important meaning as the story progresses too. Perhaps to illustrate this and take a little detour, would you like to read a portion of the book for us, perhaps from close to the beginning? Yeah, okay. I don't believe in the resurrection of the flesh, not really. But if the dead did peel back the turf and climb out, shaking the earth from their hair, blinking at the sunlight, the scene would not be very different from Wake's Weekend in Tilston Churchyard, just a bit more crowded. At the end of every August, we're revenants on assorted blankets, sitting on our family graves, the resurrected flesh and bones of our ancestors, wearing their handed-down bad teeth and weak ankles, passing round the sandwiches and cake. I wonder if the risen dead are supposed to come back the same age as when they died. Good luck for my mother if they do. Less so for my arthritic great-uncle. I think of great-uncle Matthew, whose marker stone is nearly obliterated in lichen now, 
next along from the one we're dressing. Going up for his afternoon nap in the nursing home, gnarled hand tight on the banister, one step at a time. He'd have trouble getting out of a grave with his poor swollen knees. He always paused partway up the stairs to say, Caesar Sericipit in Hiberna. Caesar retired to his winter quarters, which he claimed was all he remembered from five years of grammar school. I thought it meant I'm going to have a nap until I looked it up in the college library. None of the others wants to come, my father, my brother, they never do. When I say to them, everyone goes back for the wakes, my father gives me his long, sad look. He's been telling me since I was eight years old that my mother is never coming back. He doesn't have to bother with the words now. I know what that look means. But if she did, where else would she try to find us? And how else would she know me, except by my sitting on the marker stone, looking more or less as she did 30 years ago? How else would I know her? If she turned up in the graveyard and needed proof of who I am, I'd sing her a song. I'd sing her green gravel. Sometimes I sing it for her anyway, if I'm hanging out washing or driving alone at night. I think of it as my song. Though I'm old enough to know now, it's far older than I am. Far older than the baby my mother sang it for all those years ago. Green gravel, green gravel, your grass is so green. The fairest young maiden that ever was seen. I'll wash you in new milk and wrap you in silk. Then write down your name in a gold pen and ink. As a child, I had no idea it was a grave she was singing about, a green grave. I thought it was about gravel, the stuff on the drive that washed down the lane when there was a rainstorm. And who is being buried? New milk must be for a newborn infant, the fairest, purest creature, untouched by so much as a minute of life. All the time I thought she was singing it to me, she was singing it to that other child, the one with the marker stone, the size of a shoebox a single date on it, birth and death in one. I find myself starting conversations with her in my head, even now. When I had Susanna, I looked over my shoulder for her. I looked up from my daughter's new face and realised I was looking for my mother's eyes to meet mine. To agree with me, she was the fairest young maiden that ever was seen. I waited for her to join in the singing. I started looking around for her and crying. The midwife asked if there was a family history of postpartum psychosis. I said, no, only grief. There's a family history of grief. You can pass it on, like immunity, in the milk, like a song. Thank you for that reading. It really is quite beautiful. And your work has been recognised as such. Can I ask how it feels, what it means to be long-listed for the Man Booker Prize? Well, I think that's what everybody most wants in life is, you know, the approval of your peers. I wanted to join in the world of novels. All my life, I have loved reading novels. I can't imagine my life without a novel in my hand. I think they've saved my life, really. Reading novels has been like my absolute saviour from tiny age. So I wanted to be a part of that world. I'm already very much a part of that world as a reader. So being long-listed for the booker is like the ultimate invitation. <laughs> it's like saying, oh, you're in now. Like, you are in our world. You know, you are one of us. You are somebody who makes these things called novels. And that's just absolutely lovely. And obviously it means that 
you know, things like this happen. My book wouldn't have come to Australia and New Zealand if it, if it weren't on the book along list. It wouldn't have gone to India or Italy. It would have remained belonging, I suppose, mostly to this little tiny corner of rural England. So that's really extraordinary for me. I think of this book as so rooted here and so belonging in this really unremarkable little corner that to the idea that it might have resonance for people reading it in Mumbai or in Melbourne or something, that that to me is really extraordinary. So it feels like a little bit of this little village life here, like being sent out into the world. And that feels just really, really strange. Yeah. It may feel strange to you, but from my reading, there is that precious overlap of universality and specificity to this book that means it has and will resonate with readers from the other side of the world even, like myself. Speaking of readers, can I ask what you yourself are reading at the moment? Because I get to be invited to the shortlisting event in London on the 21st of September, everybody who's on the long list is expected to attend. So I'm going to meet all of the other novelists at that event. I have a, a bookshop that is downstairs in the building where I live. So obviously as a bookseller, I got all of the book along list in. You get your special deal from your distributors when the long list is announced that you get them all in. So I'm trying to read the whole of the long list before I go to the event because I think it might be a bit rude to meet these highly illustrious people who have written loads and loads of books if I haven't read the one that's on the long list when I meet them. And also want them to sign all my books. I want them to sign my copies. So at the moment, I'm about halfway through the list and I'm reading The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. I'm absolutely loving it. It is a really, really good, proper, old-fashioned, Dickensian-style novel. It shifts from person to person. Great characters. You really care what happens to them right from the start. I'm absolutely loving it. I have enjoyed all of the ones I've read so far. I think my favourite so far is Ayobami Autobio's A Spell of Good Things. But then I was also a massive fan of hers because of her last one. But yeah, so that's where I am at the moment. I'm having a marathon reading month trying to read 12 huge novels. Yeah, that is quite an undertaking. But you are in great company on the long list. Uh, Sean, Pearl is a wonderful novel and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It really touched me. Thank you so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and to discuss your work. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Pearl is available via all reading stores and from our website, where you can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.